Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello, and welcome to episode 64 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, which was the management rights company founded by entrepreneur Tony DeFries, which completely transformed the way that artists were able to forge their careers in the early 70s. He just let us get on with things while he did this, that and the other. You never had boring moments. I, I look back at my time with Main Man and it was just colourful, having a whale of a time. Main Man worked with legendary artists like John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Lou Reed, Marianne Faithful, Iggy Pop, Amanda Lear and David Bowie. I know that I was doing uh, Waiting for the Man by the Velvet Underground before the album came out. <laughs> which uh, positively makes me the first person in the country to... And I think I might even have beaten the American release as well because my then-manager brought back the demo of the album, a test pressing, uh, from New York. He'd just been out to New York and brought it, and I immediately loved it. I thought it was wonderful. I put Waiting for the Man in, in the band set, like, that night. For this episode, it's a pleasure to once again connect with Tony Zanetta at home in New York City as we continue our journey back 50 years to recall that amazing period in David Bowie's life when he morphed from Ziggy Stardust into Aladdin Sane. Z was at the epicenter of this incredible main man adventure, so it's always great to get his recollections. Z, how are you? Hi, Duff. I'm pretty good. How are you? We've heard Tony DeFries and Mike Garson, amongst others, in recent episodes talk about the various circumstances that influenced the music that David Bowie wrote between the Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane albums. What are your recollections of those changes, if any? I didn't see it as that much of a change, other than sort of a natural progression. And I've never seen the great distinction between Ziggy and Aladdin Sane. It was just like a little bit different makeup. <laughs> And more outfits, more costumes. The whole thing took place in such a short period of time, but so much happened, and there was so much change so quickly. But a lot of that change happened because of Mike Garson and Mike Garson's piano work on the album. And a lot of the change with everything happens because of Mike Garson, actually, at least musically and with the band. And Mike Garson was kind of a jazz pianist, but I mean, David loved it the minute he heard him. Now, Mike Garson was uh, married, had a kid, taught piano. So he's a professional musician who negotiated a fee with Tony, you know, a a salary with Tony. And that salary was $800 a week, which was not outlandish. However, the Spiders, (laughs) nobody else was on salary, period. Everybody got everything paid for. They got a monthly stipend into their bank accounts, which was supposed to be like 75 pounds, if they even got that. But if they needed a pair of boots, it was paid for. Their rent was paid for. If they needed a new outfit, it was paid for. Not only the band, but all of us. All of us that worked at Main Man. Well, that's not true. We got 100 bucks a week, I think. Anyway, on the first tour... The boys, meaning Mick and Trevor and Woody, were getting chummy with uh, Mike. And, you know, the, the, the subject of money came up. And Mike was kind of embarrassed because he thought he was being underpaid to tell them that he was being paid $800 a week. They, uh, 
when they heard that, they almost passed out. I mean, that was like an enormous, they had never even heard such an enormous amount of money. So that began the change with the spiders. Also, Mike was a Scientologist. When we got to L.A., he took them out of the Celebrity Center, the Scientology Center, and Woody became a Scientologist almost immediately. And I don't know if he still is, but anyway, he was a Scientologist for a few moments then. Mick and Trevor didn't. But it, be, it, it suddenly the band was not like 100% Davids anymore. They were like kind of thinking for themselves a little, and they were like uh, uh, branching out, and it began to cause trouble. So that for the second tour... One of the changes that started the whole thing and that precipitated what happened at Hammersmith's Odeon was the boys went to Dennis Katz. Dennis Katz was, the attor- was an attorney. Dennis Katz had been the A&R man at uh, RCA Records, so they knew Dennis. And they went to Dennis Katz to represent them to negotiate salaries with Mean Man. Well, Tony DeVries did not like that, and David Bowie didn't like it either. They took it as a huge betrayal. And, well, 50 years later, I don't remember what the result was, if they got the salaries or not. And they thought they were a band. But no, but Tony and David didn't think they were a band. And if you look at David's early career, he didn't really have band. You know, he was always David Bowie and... But there were more. There were like at least three or four different bands that he had had. It was he was always a solo artist. And DeFries did not sign the Spiders from Mars. DeFries signed David Bowie. He did not represent the Spiders from Mars. He didn't. He, and he didn't want to. He was only interested in stars, <laughs> or who had who had the potential to be a star. And and you have to realize that David always separated himself from them. He was friendly with them when he wanted to be, but he was he could also be very aloof. Well, on the first tour, we were on a bus for a while, only for a week, thank God, because that was a nightmare. <laughs> and and uh, David, most of the time, sat in the back of the bus not saying a word. But when he wanted to engage, he would immediately become the center of attention. That's just the way his personality was. Uh, so he wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, it was just, that was just his personality. He was very content to be, you know, he was very self-involved and he always had things to do and was writing or reading or, or whatever, but occasionally he would socialize. And when he socialized, he was, they, they were all very friendly. There was no problem, but, but he separated himself a lot. But the, the upshot was David and Tony took Mick aside and promised him he was going to be the next big main man artiste and he was going to get his own recording contract and blah, 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 blah. So he kind of turned his back on the other two boys. And then eventually at the end of the tour, Hammersmith Odeon, David announces his retirement, which really meant the retirement meant Spiders was over. He fired the band from the stage. And Mick went on to become a main man artist and went off to, I think, the Chateau in, in France to record his first album. And what about the touring aspect? How did that change as you went from 72 into 73? I think, we've, I mean, I'm sure that I've told you and maybe other people have told you about the first tour. And, and yes, we, we grossed $100,000 or something like that, and it cost about $400,000. This is where DeFries as far as I'm concerned, one of the brilliant parts of Tony DeFries. Some people, some lesser people would consider that a big failure. Not Tony. (laughs) Tony then marched over to RCA and calmly uh, took them aside and said, well, 
You are now into us for $400,000. I think the only logical thing for you to do is to go into the touring business with us and support our next tour, which they did. So the tour became very strategic. They were, they were involved in the planning of the tour. They gave us an accountant to take on the road with us, and Gustav Breuer, who had been on the road with us for the first tour, was still on the road with us as well. And we planned the tour very carefully this time. We weren't in a mad rush, and we weren't, you know, we weren't under pressure to like take whatever dates we could get. We only took, we only did ten cities, and those ten cities were taken from the seven, uh, uh, from the. We had only done seventeen cities in total on the first tour. We took the ten most successful cities and went back to them. I don't think we carved out any new territory on that second tour. So we did the two nights at Radio City. We went to Philadelphia and did a few nights. And in Los Angeles, we played that, which was the last city on the tour. We played the Long Beach Arena. So that was our first arena show ever. And we looked at it as like a rehearsal for the future, which actually it was. And, and that was very successful. I don't think we had any successful tour, uh, shows on the second tour. And we didn't, and, and you know, the, the hotels were more carefully. The first tour, we only stayed at the poshest hotel in the city. This, this tour was scaled down. We stayed at more affordable places. In New York, instead of the Plaza Hotel, everybody was at the Gramercy Park before they renovated the Gramercy Park. This is the old Gramercy Park Hotel. In, in Los Angeles, Dave, we had stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel on the first tour. On the second tour, David stayed at the Beverly Hilton and we stayed at the Continental Hyatt House, which was the Rock and Roll Hotel on Sunset Strip. So it was, oh, and then, and then <laughs> I'll never forget Nashville, because we stayed at a Ramada Inn. And, you know, at that point in the tour, uh, David had gotten together with Kansai Yamamoto. And the whole second tour, the Aladdin Sane stuff, was all of these clothes from, they still, he was still wearing the Freddy clothes, but now we had all these Kansai Yamamoto clothes. So the whole show was in a trunk, 17 costume changes. And we went to this Ramada, <laughs> Ramada Inn in Nashville, and I'm checking everybody in. It's just only three floors in this hotel. And the trunk goes into the elevator, and everybody's going to their rooms and blah, blah, blah. And there were some other, there were some odd things in the hotel, like Susie Ronson went to her room and all the furniture was on the bed. It's, you know, weird stuff. So I'm checking on David and the trunk didn't arrive in his room. Somehow between the lobby and the third floor, the trunk disappeared. And they're being very Southern. Oh, I don't know where it is. Blah, blah, blah. And we're trying to also, it was something for somebody's birthday. We're trying to have a party in the restaurant. And I stood in the middle of the lobby screaming and and when i scream i can scream really loud <laughs> they, they used to call it doing a z well i did a really big z in that lobby and wasn't going to stop screaming until i found that trunk <laughs> after the uh, about 10 minutes of screaming it miraculously turned up and then the other thing about the second tour was the cherry at the end, top was japan because um we had met this promoter in rca new york who promoted shows in, in Japan. So he offered DeFries a pretty good deal to bring David to Japan. It was, it, it was all guarantees. I think it was just a fee for each gig, but it was, it was good. So 
we did the 10 cities in America, and then we went to Japan and did eight cities in, in Japan. And then David got on the, whatever, the, the ship and the Trans-Siberian Express to go back to Paris and then to London. And we did the English tour ending in, uh, uh, well, starting in Earl's Court and ending at the Hammersmith Odeon. Now, see, to me, the Hammersmith Odeon is significant for other reasons. Number one, we had been on the road for over a year at that point. David and the boys had been on for like a year and a half because they really started in January of 72. So the Hammersmith Odeon was the summer of 73. They had been touring nonstop for almost a year and a half. Everybody was pretty exhausted. He gets rid of the band. But the other thing is, he, he, at that point, in that year and a half... America was still not quite, I mean, it, the press was really good. He still wasn't selling that great. But in England, he was responsible for 4% of all record sales sold in the, in the United Kingdom. David Bowie had arrived and by July of 1973. So, see, to me, the interesting thing about this whole experience was a lot of it was the relationship between Bowie and DeFries. And for me, being around two men who were so different in some ways and who were so similar in other ways, who were so ambitious and so focused, yet still quite different, but who came together to accomplish their individual goals, <laughs> which seemed like they were the same goal. <laughs> uh, but of course they weren't. So by July of 73, everything stopped. And... DeFries was now a successful music mogul, and David Bowie was a pop star. Then the changes started for the next year. Everything began to change fast. Tony rented a house in Greenwich, Connecticut. So instead of living in the two-bedroom duplex apartment on 58th Street, which was our office, he now got the house on North Street in Greenwich, Connecticut, like a 15-room house. He rented a mansion, basically. David was still living in Haddon Hall in his seven-pound-a-week flat, but couldn't really stay there anymore because of the fans. They wanted to get a house, too, but DeFries was, was not really going for that. But they did move. They moved to Maida Vale. Anyway, everybody began to uh, uh, reap the rewards of their, of their fantasy. And as they did this, they began to sort of not be quite as one as they had been, because they were really in sync for the two or three years before then. But at this point, when they each were feeling, you know, their their power a little bit more, they began to step away from each other. And then things began to change with the company, with Bowie. A lot of things changed then. Did you actually notice a change in Bowie's music at the time, or was that sort of something that didn't register with you? I was never really focused on the music. I was focused on the theatricality, and then I was focused on the, on the, you know, the social aspects of it. Because I, because I fancied myself somebody that came from the theater. For, not that I was that, that had, had that much experience in the theater, but, and his reputation was being so theatrical, which I didn't exactly understand. Because as far as I was concerned, I mean, he was great. He was a great performer. He was great on stage. But I didn't re really think that changing your clothes was that that theatrical. <laughs> 
I thought, oh, but all he does is change outfits. Is that so theatrical? I mean, he, yes, he, he had some brilliant theatrical things that he did at Radio City. And he was very cautious about what he did at, at Radio City. He didn't over, overdo it. You know, he came down from this apparatus from the ceiling, and, and the band came up from an elevator on the floor. I mean, Radio City has, was about as high tech. Had, you know, they had all this incredible technical equipment that you could use. But he was pretty, you know, he was very careful about how he edited what he, what he used. And it was strong. It was very powerful. But that, that's when, during that year, of course, we began to talk about Tour 3. I don't know. Tour 3 was, Kansas- three was the biggest tour that ever didn't happen. What was happening, so the retirement, quote, unquote, got rid of the spiders. What also happened was Tony was renegotiating David's publishing deal. And he didn't want him to write any new material. Because he didn't want to give that uh, new, he didn't want to give that new material. To, I think it was Chrysalis. So he he was that was sort of like you know a, a stop on all that. That's when he did pinups. The whole, the, yes, that was a wonderful creative idea, but it was also a business. There was a business uh, strategy behind that. That those were all uh, there was none of those were his songs. They were all covers. So there was that part of it, and then. We never stopped working on booking the gigs, so we were planning on tour three, retirement or no retirement. But Tony wanted a 90-10 deal with the promoters, and he wanted the ten, the out of the 10 percent, which would have been the promoters, he wanted all of the expenses of the gig to come. That was a deal for like a really huge superstar with guaranteed sales, and David really wasn't that, not in the United States, and he and Tony could not get those deals. We had only played 3,000-seat halls, like 10 of them successfully (laughs) in the United States. And we'd only done 17 gigs in the United States. And we had played the one arena, Long Beach. So these were like, now we're we're talking about an arena tour with 90-10 deals. That was a little ambitious. So it was taking a while. And plus, because of the retirement, we had to come up with a strategy to unretire, and we came up with a marketing came uh, a campaign called "The Year of the Diamond Dogs," <laughs> which was actually pretty good, I think. So, "The Year of the Diamond Dogs," as David started to record "Diamond Dogs," was sort of like chronicling David's year and how his creativity led to the creation of this next show, which was the Diamond Dogs Tour. So that was the way it became, he became unretired. But before he got into Diamond Dogs, in October of 73, David filmed the 1980 Floor Show at the Marquee in London for the Midnight Special Series in America. Yeah, and then, and then so Woody wasn't part of that. We had Ainsley Dunbar for a while. And, uh, but Trevor was, and Mick was, and of course, Amanda Lear who David was seeing at the time. To me, she's one of the most fascinating people of the 20th or 21st century. She was so charming and attractive and made the, I I ran into an old friend of hers one day on the street in New York and he said, can you believe what she did? She took her worst asset, her voice, which was like deep, deeply bass, and turned it into a fortune and turned it into a career, which is true. She's an incredible person. She's reinvented herself how many times? You know, she's been a disco style model. She started in the drag clubs in Paris. So I think that tells you something. She worked with Romy Hogg and, and uh, April Ashley. 
became a top model in London, and then turned, she couldn't sing, but she became a, one of the most successful disco singers in Europe, and then became a TV star in Italy, and then now she's still working in, in Paris, making movies, doing, doing live theater. I mean, she must be 83 years old if she's a day. And she did very well. You know, Main Man supported her for about a year. She came to New York for a while. We had an incredible lunch with Salvador Dali where we introduced her to the New York press. That was fun at the Four Seasons. And Dali picked up like two strangers on the street and brought them in. I mean, he just picked up his people up and brought them to the lunch and would not speak a word of English, only spoke Spanish. <laughs> but she got some good press out of it. <laughs> she was really charming. And Amanda was just one of the many muses at that time who enjoyed that exciting period in Bowie's career. David always had a good time. <laughs> Even Angie would say he was, a, he was a right stud. He'd poke a hole in the wall. <laughs> there were girls everywhere, and the occasional boy, but mainly it was girls. And all still while he was married to Angie, who saw herself as a very important part of his success, even at that time. Angie was terrific, and she was so much fun, and she was creative, and she was smart. But you have to realize that she had as many boyfriends as he, has as he had girlfriends. She wasn't sitting still with her legs crossed, that's for sure. <laughs> but she still was very tied to him. And some of the women she would get jealous. Some of them she did, like, dismissed and didn't care about. But there were those that she would get jealous of. I, I think Ava was one of them. I don't know about Amanda. It depended. Tony Zanetta with some really interesting recollections from the period 50 years ago when David Bowie was enjoying the excitement of finally achieving the rock stardom he'd been pursuing for so long. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from that era on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw. This is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.